Hello and welcome back to another video on this channel. Today I am joined with Warren to continue our biblical series. I have to apologize, I haven't had much time to make this series for you guys. But as we can see, I have put my mind back to we're continuing the biblical series and I've brought in my good friend Warren Jew to discuss Genesis 3 with me. In the past two videos, we have indeed discussed Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And now the natural progression is 3. And before we get into it, how are you, Warren Jew? I'm, I'm pretty good. I'm just looking through Genesis 3, trying to trying to catch up with the, the content. So how about the first thing we st indeed start off with is indeed the first idea, which is indeed the idea of temptation. And that is, I think, the interesting relationship between the serpent and indeed the uh, the woman, which is uh, which can be seen in Genesis chapter 3, uh, verse 1 to uh, verse 5, which says, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God has made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from, the, the, from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the tree of the garden. But God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What are your initial thoughts about this? It's very profound. Uh, I think two things we, we can pick up. Actually, three things that, that we can analyze. First, the door of femininity in, in, in the story. Why is it Eve that's being tempted instead of Adam? And, and I'm sure we're, we're trying to, to get some deeper meaning into it than just a, a kind of feminist critique into the Bible, because I don't think it's very helpful. But other than that, we need to get clear on what does it mean uh, for God to say that we will die, that Eve will die when we eat the eat the fruit. But also, the 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 third thing is the knowledge of good and evil is the is the core characteristic that makes us uh, similar to God. I think these these three items are really key here. I think one of the interesting reasons about why uh, the Satan uh, goes to uh, Eve is, is very interesting because I think that it's less so because of her gender, but, but more so perhaps because it was some sense of indirect temptation towards, towards Eve. And I think this is something very interesting about the nature of temptation as a whole. It's the idea that the source of the moral law, or the source of the thing, of the divine command, or whatever moral standard you're coming from, goes from the Lord to Adam and then from Adam to Eve. There's an intermediary, intermediary process. And what Eve happens is that Satan does not target the immediate direction from God, but indeed the, the, the after the secondary source. And that's where Satan is indeed targeted. And I think that might be one of the places we can start off with the discussion. So in the Bible, Eve is secondary or Eve came out of Adam. If, if mm -hmm. I'm not getting this wrong. We, I was thinking, can you even say that somehow it's always, uh, it's always women who teaches men good and evil, or who slaps him in the face, and he's like, fuck you. I think that's a very interesting thing, but though I do think that perhaps it's kind of some sense of there's a dynamic between man and woman in the sense that the man is the, is the representation of the, the strictness of the law, perhaps a divine command and the woman is the relationship of well you have to understand the situation within its context the man the man is a person saying well 
The man is the guy who gets a direct command and he says, well, you shall not eat of the tree. And then on the other hand, the woman is like, well, but there is the situation in which you might be able to eat from the tree. And of course, this is, the woman does not give a sufficient reason to de 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 defy God. But at the same time, I think it represents an interesting dynamic between perhaps in perhaps in more psychoanalytical terms between the order and the chaos of the man and the woman. Yeah. Or, or the, yeah, the feminine is the one that can can transgress the the law, whereas the, the male is in in psychoanalytical terms, the male is primarily castrated when when it's born and and locked inside a symbolic order, whereas the feminine has the potential to to jump out of of the order and to transgress the law. And it is it is this very transgression that makes us human, because I, I think we, we can lead on to the next point of being like God after eating the fruit, which mm -hmm. is par paradoxical in the sense that we're, it, it's both a death, but also an approaching towards the divine. I'm wondering what you think about it. I think the idea of being like God is a very interesting situation. And, and this is what we were discussing when I first was thinking about making the video myself. And I was like, I'm not exactly sure how to interpret uh, Genesis 3 in the most direct sense, because I, I definitely have a few themes I think we can find in the, in the story. But there's always that question, well, why exactly did God create the tree knowing that man would eat it? And also knowing that if man ate it, they would become closer to God. And there's this very weird question which you see here. But I think I think perhaps one of the reasons why we see kind of this uh, situation between man and God is not necessarily that the eating of the tree is the moral judgment, but rather the existence of the tree is the moral judgment. And this is something that you were uh, suggesting, or at least in, in some degree to me when we were discussing this the first time around, because, because it seems explicit to me that the moment God tells Adam, you should not eat of the tree, that is already a knowledge of good and evil. So eating the tree seems less less so to be of any moral value, but more so of the action of the moral value, perhaps, or which explains it. I, I would disagree with you here, mm -hmm. because when, when God gives this direct command of, well, you should not eat the, the tree, I don't think it directly implies, implies morality, but it seems like morality is this direct transgression that, that makes you moral. So what I guess my reading would somehow be that what makes the what gives you knowledge of good and evil in eating the fruit is not some magical power inside the fruit itself, but the very act of eating the fruit and going against God's command. And this is the knowledge of good and evil. And related to this, why the knowledge of good and evil is gets you closer to God is because I think the Christian God has this special attribute of being able to create out of nothing. And if you think about it, Kant makes this point, a moral act is always almost this creating out of nothing, this creative ex nihilo, in the sense that when you're really acting morally, you're, you're acting unconcerned with any, uh, I guess, natural, natural effect on you and your, your sole determination of the effect that you're producing. And that is a direct cause out of nature, which the moral, which is a quality of the moral act. And I think that is why the moral act brings us closer to God.
I think that's a very interesting distinction and it ties into the previous discussion that we had about the ethical. But unfortunately, I'll be uploading this video before I upload our previous discussion <laughs> on the ethical. So, so you might have to wait a bit before you actually understand what I mean by this previous discussion. However, nevertheless, I think that what you're pointing to, I don't fully agree with you, though I definitely think it we, is pointing towards some middle ground between the two of our formulations, which I think is the biblical message in the sense that perhaps the command of God allowed us to know what good is, but it didn't allow us to fully recognize the gravity of evil or did not allow us to fully understand what morality was. It, it wasn't until that man ate of the tree that he also understood what evil is in the sense that perhaps perhaps the teacher could give us could give us school rules, perhaps us as prefects, they might say, or at least maybe like our head boy and head girl telling us, do not mess around in prefect meetings. But it isn't until we start messing around in prefect meetings that we, we truly understand what exactly happens when you mess around in the prefect meeting, right? So in the same way, I think it's like God gives man the command and he already knows what good and evil is. But he doesn't really understand what it actually means to be good and evil until he actually acts both in a good way, in the sense that Adam is the man is commanding or sharing the good to others by telling Eve it, but also by breaking the law, by going against his own command from God. And it's this kind of both understanding, this dual nature, which allows man to understand both good and evil from eating the tree. Uh, I, I have a question, which, which is, I, I'm not exactly sure what you mean by knowledge or knowing here, because mm -hmm. I, I can't see how the, the command by God uh, directly implies that Adam and, and Eve already know good and evil. And at the same time, I think my, my more radical interpretation of the Bible uh, as, as a non-Christian would be that it is this transgression of the law that makes the act moral. As in, the, the, the first act for us to learn morality would be to not listen to God or not listen to what is directly handed down to us. It is this uh, exploring outside the bounds of, of what is set for us that makes us moral. I think uh, talking about how do we know how, how Adam knew good and evil in this situation was more so the idea of the, sur the superficial understanding of the fact, but, but without understanding the, the gravity of the fact. For example, it's like how you how an analytic philosopher might get to a certain logical or analytic conclusion without ever knowing about how to live it out or embodying it. Mm -hmm. I think in the same way, God, uh, Adam knowing the fact from God, the command from God, is like the analytic philosopher reaching his analytic conclusion. And it's only after he actually eats the tree in which he actually understands what it means. And I think that, yeah. that there, there's that relationship between the two. Yeah, things. yeah. Yeah, I think, I think that's what I was trying to get at. So we perhaps need a distinction between knowledge in a propositional sense of I just mm -hmm. shouldn't do that and perhaps a kind of understanding of a way which is directly linked to morality because we, we can say that morality is not just following these strict rules set up for us even though there's wisdom inside the true morality would be to inherit a certain tradition and a set of rules and then understanding why those came about i think that's very interesting and i think i think this we can perhaps move a bit further in the discussion towards the idea of of god commanding us to eat from the tree but also the idea that the idea that 
Adam's command or passing on of the message to Eve was not exactly the same as the message that God passed on to Adam. I think that there's a very interesting thing here because in Genesis 2, we see that when God tells a command to Adam, we see that God says, but, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Then what does Eve tell the serpent of the command? Ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it, lest ye die. Eve somehow gets the idea of you shall not touch the tree, even though in the command that Ad, Adam doesn't, like the Adam receives from God, doesn't actually include the touch. So I'm wondering what you'll think of how where this touch idea came from and what actually is this relationship. That, that's that's a very very interesting observation. I've never thought about that, but there's, I guess there's an idea where the more you prohibit something the more you desire towards it, or mm -hmm. the, it, it is in the nature of desire that we wish to transgress what is most prohibited to us. If, if it's completely, I guess, if there's no hurdle between you and the thing you desire, you don't desire it anymore. That's what happens in the kind of medieval love stories of the night uh, going to the princess. It is because the princess is sort of locked inside a castle and trapped that the knight has such a fervent love towards it. If, for example, that the princess is just there right in front of the knight, I think it would it'll be a much more tragic story in love. I, and that's also why a lot of marriages just fall apart instantly, because you have the, the kind of burning desire that is produced by a separation or a hurdle. And then when you finally get married, and when there's no distance between you and the other, uh, it, it is precisely then that you lose you lose that fervent love. I think you're touching on a very interesting point. It's the idea that we do need kind of some separation, some difficulty, which we're drawn towards. It's kind of like when a girl plays hard to get to get the guy to like him. It's a very <laughs> weird thing. It's like they play hard to get, then the guy actually likes her, but doesn't actually admit the true feelings. And the girl's like, well, do, do you not find me likable? And you're like, what on earth is going on here? I play hard to get, but at the same time, you don't find me likable. It's like, there's this kind of paradoxical notion here. But I think that that, that perhaps is at the core of kind of this kind of this ethical decision. We, we, we are drawn towards the evil because it is prohib prohibited, less so because we want to do the evil act itself, perhaps. And I'm not sure how fully to kind of develop it, but I definitely think that there is a relationship between the two, which which is definitely worth of note. But perhaps moving and, on a bit. Wait, 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 go wait. Ahead. And also the sense of touch is, is very mm -hmm. different to, mm -hmm. it's, I think, Touch seems very sexual. That's that's mm -hmm. all I can say. Mm -hmm. It's, but but then, the touch and the taste seems to be intertwined into each other uh, more so than other senses. So I think mm -hmm. there, there's still a certain logic here, because the seeing is there's a hurdle in seeing, but touching you're, you're directly feeling the thing, and it's mm -hmm. the same as tasting. Mm -hmm. So. I'm not sure what you think about it. And and there's also the idea where in aesthetic judgment, we, we call the power of aesthetic judgment, the, the faculty of taste. And what do you think about this metaphor? I think it's something very interesting. And perhaps Adam's adding of the touch into the kind of the tree is, is just to is, is good meaning. But at the same time, by twisting 
the moral command, even with a good meaning, it leads to horrible circumstances. For example, like it's quite clear that in, if Eve had to eat the tree, she must first touch the tree. So Adam added, don't touch the tree at all, because, well, why just go on and touch the tree if you to tempt yourself further to eat it? So I think that there's this kind of relationship here. But at the same time, I think that there's the dynamic, which is, well, even though it might make something more difficult, by adding further barriers, you're actually making yourself even more tempted to do it. If you didn't add the touch, though, you might say, well, let's look at the tree. It looks beautiful. That's it. Like, end of story. But adding, oh, you can't touch it. Oh, you can't do this. Oh, you should add a, like a browser block here or something like that. You, it makes the entire situation so tempting that you have an even higher kind of desire to fulfill it or a desire to kind of pursue it. And I think that might be one of the reasons why he adds the thing, well-meaning, but unfortunately it leads to horrible circumstances. Yeah. And now I think we can move on to the idea of dying once we <laughs> taste the fruit. <laughs> what do you think that exactly means? It's very enigmatic. I think the, the idea of dying, I, I don't necessarily agree with the young earth creationists in the idea that, oh, it was only after they ate the fruit that things started dying in the world. I don't necessarily think that that's the case. But I do think that there is more of a metaphysical dying in the sense that man has stepped on a route towards the need of salvation. But then at the same time, stepping on that route towards that dying is itself life in some sense that man can only fulfill his potential if he dies first. And that's the idea, I think, of the baptism. It's like you, you, you receive the greatest part of becoming a Christian through baptism is this symbolic representation of dying in the water and raising out from the water, kind of the idea of Jonah going into the sea and out of the sea. And there's this idea of the death is the way to life. And I think that's something we can build on. Yeah, yeah. That's what I was thinking too. So the death is uh, symbolically a kind of severing from your entire history. That's why I think, you know, I, I've been thinking about the line from Hegel, right? The end of history. And mm -hmm. for me, some people interpret the end of history as this static thing that, well, we've reached the end of history. Now, nothing, uh, everything is good. There's nothing going on uh, anymore. And, and I think that that's what Hegel means. But I feel like when Hegel says the end of history is the same as here, when we're saying we're dying, it is exactly the possibility for a completely new beginning. And, and, and that's what death or the end of history means. And because the myth, the, the myth of the death is prevalent in a lot of cultures. I, I think I've read, like there's a tribe somewhere where once you're like 16, you will have to like walk through fire and then climb up a tree with, with knives. And then people have to stop them from doing that because like 80% of the people just died. When they're 16, trying to go through, and then the, the tribe, but like they're not, you're not able to sustain themselves anymore. I think I think that's a very interesting thing, and you're you're bringing up Hegel is very interesting because I think that Hegel is fundamentally a very Christian thinker. No matter how much you want to detach him from his theistic roots, I definitely think he's a Christian thinker, and I think it ties into his writing on the fall. I think he wrote an essay. I'm not sure is it's Hegel on the fall or something along yeah. those lines, and. And there he, he kind of sees the, this fall of man as symbolic, but not only symbolic, but almost equivalent to the need for redemption. It's, it's, or at least not the redemption, but the salvation is almost one in the same. And, and perhaps one of the ways we see the end of history, and I think building on your point, is to see, well, well the only way that Ma Eve and Adam were actually going to open up almost a boundless potential was through the death, was through the fall. Mm -hmm. It's by sinning that they opened, it went into the world and, there's the idea that they went from paradise into the world, but 
but by going into the world, they, they, they gain the potential of gaining an even greater paradise at the end of it, perhaps. And there's this kind of, kind of interesting relationship here. And the only question perhaps you have to ask is, well, is, is God actually a bad person by allowing this entire situation to happen? And a lot of atheists say yes, but I'd like to hear your thoughts about it. I think I've, I've got a few thoughts. I think structurally, this is Hegel's point. You can't have paradise without the fall. You can't have the paradise without the falling from the paradise. So it is very profound for the Christian story that you, you first have the paradise, but then you also have the seemingly inevitable fall from it. It's the same as um, whenever we say that something is total, when we say a totality, structurally, we're already presupposing something outside of the totality or else there's no point for us to to, to name that thing total if it encompasses really everything. And I think that, that's the same idea as paradise in, in, in the biblical creation story. But also what I find in, in, in the Christian narrative is that there's, there's almost two deaths that's significant, right? There's the first death where you go down into the world. And I think your use of the word world is very important here. There's, there's a ton of connotations about the world later on with Heidegger and Hannah Arendt and, and those guys. And for them, the world is this place that is populated with meaning, filled with human beings, interacting with each other, talking to each other with their voice. And it is in this world of people striving to do good, people perhaps suffering, trying to escape from suffering and loving each other, that, that, that the human that the human is truly defined. And similarly, I think it is through this constant fall, and this is the, the doctrine of original sin, I guess, that we are truly human. Being human is to, constant, is to constantly sin and try to do better, but that's the first death. And then there's also a second death of Christ, which seemingly redeems us, but redeems us in such a way that also puts a great burden onto each and every person to to follow Christ. I think there's a very interesting kind of dialogue here, and I think your idea about the Hague, the Hegelian idea was something I was trying to push you to say, though I didn't want to directly tell you to say it. But it's essentially the idea that I think I think it is so true. There's this idea that the fall, and perhaps this is essentially how man enters into time and is and is meant to, not time, but enters into the world and is meant to interact with the world. And, he's, and he has to distinguish in this existential kind of angst or this dilemma. And he's struggling within it. And that perhaps is kind of what, what it means when you shall know good and evil. It's not just this kind of experiencing it in the past. Of course, that's one aspect of it. But perhaps the further consequences of it is that you can, is that humans have the choice to leave that paradise and and that's a tree. The tree symbolizes the, the, the end of history, but also an, an exit from a paradise, a free exit from the paradise into a world of meaning and struggle and understanding and love, which you definitely were, was talking about. And I think that's definitely one of the implications of knowing good and evil is to trying to find and apply that good and evil into the world. Yeah. And symbolically, we can even say that the death of Christ is also this kind of end of history because uh, Christ says it is finished. When, when he dies, I think it's the Gospel of John. Of course, in the other Gospels, he says, like, my, uh, my Lord, my Lord, ha why have you forsaken me? But just to take the, the one from Gospel of John, it is finished. What is finished? History has been finished. 
when Christ dies. And it is then that the radical, radically new possibility can emerge, uh, a possibility for salvation after Christ. But to get back to the to the idea of entering time, I think I think you're right that we enter time when we know good and evil, because the structure of morality, the structure of the good, is is always teleological, right? We're, we're pursuing the good, and the good is the end, the the end in itself for either Kant or Aristotle. And actually, there's also another idea in Heidegger where we're stretched between past and future. But, and then the future is exactly de defined by, by death. The past is, of course, defined by our thrillness. But, but that's another story. So it is in this sense that we enter into time by realizing death, but at the same time also realizing a goodness. Perhaps you can even say that death and morality is somehow intertwined because they, they, they all th throw us into the future. But other than this, there's also this very interesting idea in Kant where the, the, the existence of the, of the good, the existence of morality presupposes a God and, and immortality. So in some sense for Kant, it is the, the good which comes first and the good creates a retrospectively God and immortality, which makes the good possible. I think it's perhaps less so of the retrospective kind of creation, but almost um, an identity and, and not identity in the strict analytical sense, but more of like kind of like the good is the good exists or the good the good and, and exists is a word which is just too tied up with different metaphysical interpretation. But just for simplicity, the good exists even only if the immortality of the soul exists. And I think that's something that Dostoevsky was building on as well. Mm -hmm. And perhaps Kant recognized is that the the good goodness is is tied in with with this teleology and is that even how you pronounce it? I think it is, right? Yeah, teleology, yeah. Teleology. And, and that the tele teleology is only tied in when there is the mortality of soul and there is consequence mm -hmm. to life in, in some degree. And, and I think that this ties into, or unless there's something else you want to add on to, is this yeah, idea... Yeah. Mm -hmm. Go ahead. I'll just add on to, to it by, by sort of short, describing Kant's reason for thinking about uh, how, why... why the good presupposes immortality and God, because Kant, Kant says that uh, the good as ultimate good is unreachable by any one of us. It's sort of this receding point, this idea that we, we can always progress towards infinitely, but never reach. So to, to have the idea of the summum bonum, the, the highest good, presupposes an infinite amount of time for us to work towards the good, right? And then that's the presupposition of immortality. And then the presupposition of God is that the summum bonum, the, the ultimate good, does not only include moral action, but also includes the promise of happiness uh, in after, after those actions. But for, for Christians, then, then it, it lies in the idea of God, because, well, well we, we can strive towards the good in the phenomenal world for, for Kant. And perhaps uh, it, it may not lead to any happiness, but the Christians would think, well, by pursuing this infinitely, also up into the world of beyond, then we can, 
then then the happiness and the and more morality would be able to combine together to fit the concept of the highest good. But can't though this doesn't imply the direct existence of God or immortality, but it means that we have to believe it or we have to have faith in it, so long as we are moral creatures. I think that's definitely a very interesting uh, approach and a very interesting kind of discussion. And I think that's something that we perhaps could discuss further in another discussion. But, but fi a final topic that I want to discuss here is perhaps the idea of guilt. And of course, guilt is perhaps found or illustrated more, more explicitly in Cain and Abel. And of course, Macbeth kind of tries to tries to uh, mimic Cain and Abel a bit more, and then Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment does the same with uh, Macbeth. But, but I definitely think that there's this idea of guilt in, um, in the beginning story of the idea of then the man and the wife, let's, let's bring this thing up, then the man and the wife heard the sound of God uh, as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. That is a very interesting thing. Do you have any thoughts about it immediately? Oh yeah, in Lacanian psychoanalysis, you know what, what shame symbolizes. <laughs> what does it symbolize? Yeah. No, 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 nothing very obscene. It symbolizes the, the non-existence of the big other or the non-existence of God is exactly symbolized by shame. That's why we're very shameful when we see perhaps someone on the street who's begging for money. That is shameful because we realize that the, the kind of order, the big other in Lacanian jargon can not encompass everyone and there are people left out. And I think it, it's a similar thing which can be said in, uh, in Adam and Eve. The shame is exactly that God can, God did not have control over, over Adam and Eve. And they're shameful because they realize that somehow God is not omnipotent in, in some way. I think that, that's, that's, that can be a psychoanalytical reading, although I don't think it's very theologically correct. Well, perhaps it's not in the sense that it was um, God was not omnipotent, but rather God gave them the choice the entire time, but they just didn't see it. For example, it's very easy for us to say, well, there's a bad situation. Oh, God caused it. But then that is just kind of the shifting of the blame, the individual responsibility away from ourselves towards uh, external beings. Sometimes this is God. Sometimes it is, I don't know, your parents or whatever. Like we always like to say, well, that was in their control. Why did it go wrong? Yeah. When in fact, the entire problem from start to, be, to end was caused by ourselves. Mm -hmm. and, and perhaps this was the shame of Adam and Eve. They realized that there was no longer a God to hide behind that. God not only would have given them a tree, given them a, a way out of paradise, but also gave them the ability to choose that way out of paradise. And as a result, yeah. they felt shameful. So it was more no, of this no. kind of, mm -hmm. go yeah. ahead. No, I, I, think, I think you're completely correct. As it, it, it almost makes it sound like the only way you can be a genuine Christian is to accept your own, accept your responsibility and to, to not relegate everything to God, only then do you really believe in the Christian God by taking up this burden. And this burden is directly linked with the shame that you feel for, for doing something wrong. Mm -hmm. I think that is definitely true. And I think it's this embracement of the individual responsibility, which is tied so deeply with the idea of bearing your cross. It's like, it's like well, why are we called to bear our cross? We're not bared 
we're not called to bear Jesus' cross. That that was his cross to bear. We're asked to carry our cross, and that has taken on our individual responsibility. And of course, we can be helped along the way by Jesus, who would, and that ideal. We we've seen the ideal, the perfect representation of bearing of the cross, and we could be motivated by it. But ultimately, the individual responsibility lies on our shoulders. And as a result, I think it is a, a very fair situation for all of us. So, and I think that's a solution to a lot of actually a lot yeah. of objections to Christianity. Mm-hmm. And the the cross, it, it just occurred to me, has like a very great symbolism. As in, it it's a it points you to a central point, and that point is sort of the point that you have to strive for to to be moral and good. But at the same time, I want to direct you to another passage uh, or another feature about nudity and in, inside this thing. What would you think about the the, the symbol of of being naked? How does it feature? I think it's very interesting. It's one of those things where you look in culture and like there's some clear connotation, or at least throughout history. I mean, now nudity has taken a bit, or at least like a lack of clothing has taken a bit more of a of a different kind of meaning in current society. But at least culturally, or at least historically, nudity has been a sign of vulnerability and um, vulnerability and weakness, or not necessarily weakness, but there's a, there's a sense of vulner- vulnerability, but also great beauty. And, and, and that's perhaps one of the reasons why they carved the Greek gods as naked. Though you might say the Greek gods was a bit of a different situation because you have Hercules as naked and, and he's pretty strong. So, so I'm, not, I'm not fully sure how we view the nudity in this situation. Yeah. Or, or wh- why do we always like to paint nudes? Or why, why do famous artists and famous sculptors <laughs> like to paint people naked? I think and, it's... And, pra- yeah, mm-hmm. And I, I build statues naked. Mm-hmm. I think perhaps it's part of it is actually recognizing that there is something good to the nudity. It's not all evil. They're, like it's it's nudity is a gift. It's kind of like how now I sound really postmodern, but like it it kind of is like well, God created man naked in the first place. He didn't give them a set of clothing. It's like well, nudity was originally something acceptable, something open because there wasn't anything to harm them. And you might say now I've become young earth creationist. There's no death before the fall, but. But it's like in, in a metaphorical sense, like before the fall, there was nothing really to harm them, nothing really to go wrong. And, and then after that, they realize that they do need indeed, they, they indeed need protection. And then that's where everything kind of stems from at the end. Mm-hmm. But it also reminds me of, you know, the story of the emperor with, mm-hmm. with no clothes. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, and, and someone commented that the problem with the kid who says that the emperor does not have any clothes is that under our clothes, we are all naked. Mm-hmm. I'm very confused. Can you elaborate that analogy a bit more? <laughs> I, I was very confused when I first heard this too. So on, the problem is that uh, we, we are really, okay, okay, in this sense, we, we, we ignore in our daily interaction the nudity of the other person. So we, we sort of hide their, their farts, their shit, <laughs> and, and all, all the other things they do in their, in their private life as, as we're interacting, but underneath. And that's what perhaps culture is all about. It, it's about hiding or, or trying to make our interaction as smooth, smooth as possible without the intrusion of the private life of the other. Culture is exactly this hiding away of the nakedness of us uh, underneath. 
I think that's something very interesting. I definitely think culture does indeed play that role in a lot of situations. And I think that that role could be a lot of things. Culture, upbringing and all those things kind of play a part into it, definitely. And it kind of interlinks with each other. So I think we've covered most of the the discussion that I wanted to cover about uh, Genesis 3. Do you have any last kind of thoughts or topics that you want to add before we end off this uh, relatively short discussion? Yeah, yeah. I want to ask you about the... (laughs) The idea of the tree of life because you remember i said that <laughs> when i was mm-hmm. thinking about this i thought the tree of death equals to the tree of life mm-hmm. I'm, I'm wondering what, what you think i think it's very interesting because I was, I was i was i was looking at this situation now I, I can't for the end of me realize or understand well what necessarily means this tree of life it wasn't strictly forbidden to eat from the tree of life but it was definitely strictly forbidden after they ate the tree from good and evil so Perhaps there's this idea of once you eat from the tree of good and evil and you enter into the, in, into the world in this Heideggerian sense, eating the tree of life will completely defeat the purpose of being in the world. Because being in the world, you have consequences, you have individual responsibility. The tree of life, perhaps, is the representation for the lack of responsibility. Before you enter the world, you don't need, you, it, it, it's fine if you eat the tree of life because you don't have this similar kind of existential angst facing you. But it would be completely unfair if you entered the world and you had, and you also didn't have any angst at all. You wouldn't gain anything from it. I think that that might be the reason why it, the tree of life only became forbidden after after they ate from the tree and good and evil and were sent or thrown into the world. Okay, can can we hear do a do a small reversal of uh, of Dostoevsky instead of without the immortality of soul, everything is permissible. Something like. If with immortality, everything is permissible. Well, I think that I, I don't necessarily think that it will be everything is permissible, but but rather, um, if with the immortality of the soul, and now I think it really depends on is this the immortality of the soul on earth? Actually, no, I would say that eating the tree of life would be the immortality of the body, not necessarily the immortality of the soul. So you might say they're tied interlinked or tied deeply together. I think the immortality of the soul is a representation of the life beyond death, the judgment of the ultimate consequence, whereas the immortality of the body would be just living on earth forever. And I think that there lies a fundamental difference. What Dostoevsky is perhaps saying is that, well, without God or without the immortality of the soul, then you see that there is no virtue in in the sense that there would be no consequences. And in the same way, if you have the mortality of the body, there would be no consequences. You'll live forever and you'll immediately ellipse or stay away from facing any consequences because you'll never die. So I think that it's perhaps is a slight difference between the immortality of the body and immortality of the soul and eating from the tree of life would ensure the immortality of the body. So morality is in some sense being towards death. Yeah, well, I think morality has its greatest significance if it actually has a consequence. Mm-hmm. Not that you should act because of the consequence, but rather it has its gravity because it actually has a further effect. Because if morality was just acting and there was actually no consequence for anything of it, then I think mor- morality would become completely useless. It's like creating a it's like creating a tool which does absolutely nothing. That tool may as well not exist. But not that I, 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 I don't think 
I don't think the concept of use can be applied to morality at all. As in morality, the moral act is exactly that thing that is the ultimate end, which is not the mean towards anything else and therefore is not useful for anything else. Because here I'm trying to compare this with the previous Kantian injunction that you need to presuppose immortality for morality because uh, it's, it's so difficult to strive to be moral. And since also for Kant, morality doesn't care about any consequences at all. I think, I think you're right in the sense that when you're acting, the judgment of the action is not based on the consequences. So morality should be seen, however, as itself being in the bigger picture of the world and its consequences. So the action itself does, is not related to our consequences. It's kind of like you have the individual action judged by the structure of morality, and then you have the individual morality judged in the structure of the, the entire story. Mm -hmm. So there's kind of this separation between the two levels. So and the previous when, you, mm -hmm. when you act, or when you try to act morally, do you have to cons consider about consequences? Because this, this hinges on the interpretation of the tree of life. Because if, if it really is true that with immortality, there is, with immortality, with complete uh, bodily immortality, there's no morality, then this makes a lot of sense. As we, we almost have to say that God is too afraid to, to give us immortality for us to pursue the good again and again and again perhaps linking to the idea in the idiot where the striving towards the good can actually lead to the worst consequence well i think perhaps if you look at i think the reason why god does not give us the immortality of the body is perhaps because it would completely defeat the purpose or it will completely um, prohibits man from achieving their true potential. Because I think there's good anecdotal evidence, at least, to see that that in the face of danger, at the face of the end, or the temporal nature, makes man act in his best way, regardless if you believe there's afterlife or not. There's this idea that the temporality of life is man's greatest gift in some sense, and Tolkien builds on that a lot. It's like mm -hmm. you have the elves who are immortal and you have the men who are mortal. The elves are in some sense jealous of the men who are mortal because they, they have their lives have meaning in some sense. Their lives end, but at the same time, that end makes it all the more meaningful. Yeah. And that is perhaps mm -hmm, different. And, and in the same way, that's perhaps why God does not allow us to eat from the tree of life because a mortality of the body would immediately lead to that kind of meaning being stripped away from, from mankind. But I, I guess what I was trying to say in say is that the fall retrospectively <laughs> creates the possibility for immortality without the fall they, there's no desire to go and eat the tree of life because you don't know death at all but once you've fallen you realize that ah fuck i i forgot to eat that tree of life perhaps that's the idea of, tra of us trying to escape the individual responsibility once you eat the tree of the good and evil you realize that you realize that you had individual responsibility all along, but you just in the like, so perhaps you have this general story arc before man or Adam ate the tree, man didn't know that they had individual responsibility. They thought they could just blame it on God. But then after they eat, ate the tree, they realize, oh no, God actually is not in control of this. 
because God gave us individual responsibility. And then after that, they're like, well, well, I don't want this individual individual responsibility. Let's go and eat the tree of life to get that individual responsibility away from us. However, that's why God said, don't go to the tree of life. You have individual responsibility. And it's by understanding this individual responsibility in the world that we make the most of the situation, this most of this kind of Christian idea of bearing the cross towards individual salvation. Yeah. Then what, what is your image of Adam and Eve living before the fall? Well, I think that their, their situation before the fall, I think the entire Genesis 1 to 3 story is actually a very short and simple story. It, I think... I think there's certain aspects where we can tie, bring out kind of psychological kind of profundity from it. But but even if you look at it from a liter more literal perspective, people have, have suggested that the entire Genesis story from the creation of man to the end from them kicking out of the garden was going to be less than less than three, three months or four months or something like that. Because they said that because right after they got kicked out of the garden. They had Cain and Abel, the two kids, right? So, I mean, clearly they, and, and also God told them to um, be fruitful and multiply, right? So they probably screwed each other, like on the first day they're a creator or something along those lines, right? So, I mean, if that's the case, then, and assuming pregnancy works the same way as it does now, then surely there's only like a three month gap between them. So I don't, I generally don't think that there's too much of a difference between the two time slots, perhaps, but more so it's just, we just focus on, kind of the fall because that is ultimately the biggest kind of event that happened in their life and there was nothing much more interesting going on previously because they would just be like oh they walked around the garden talking around they had good conversation and that's basically it <laughs> and like screwed each other <laughs> yeah exactly uh so you, you believe that adam and eve were not immortal or so 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 fundamentally anatomically or at least biologically they're, they're the same thing it's more uh, real, some moral realization that turns the, the paradise into the world. I think that that I think at least from a symbolic representation that is the case. I mean, people have recently worked up, up and discussed about the biological Adam and Eve and stuff. There's lots of literature about it, like Josh Swamdas, William Lane Craig recently wrote something about it, and I personally haven't read any of them. So personally, to me, I don't view. I don't view it to be important to have a direct kind of theology surrounding Adam and Eve, or at least the first three chapters of Genesis. Sure. I mean, I think it's very important that we don't throw it in the bin, but at the same time, I don't necessarily view it in the same way some young earth creationists view it, in the sense that if you don't believe in my literal interpretation, you're choosing man's word over God's word. I don't necessarily think that's the case either. So I have to admit. I, I, I feel like if you take it literally, it's, it's more blasphemous than reading it uh, metaphorically, <laughs> in, in some sense, or reading it symbolically. And there, I think there, there's a there's there's some Jewish uh, Jewish community where I think I think there's there's just some prediction in the in the Old Testament or somewhere else, right? Uh, if if like a blue cow gets born, then the Messiah will come. And then they start using like genetic engineering to try to produce a blue cow. I mean, I mean, what's a bigger blasphemy than that? Yeah, <laughs> I completely agree with that. I think that that might be an interesting story or interesting area to end our discussion on Genesis three. I but before we start recording, I said that this would perhaps be a shorter discussion, but I suppose it did turn out shorter than any of the other discussions we've had. 
So I hope you've enjoyed this video. Like always, if you want to understand more about the biblical series, make sure you check it out on the playlist I'll put above up top. Make sure you go check that out. It is a very interesting playlist if I could so self-proclaim and self-promote myself that much. If you want to check out more of Warren's channel and discussion, go check out Thinkless Kitchen. Like always, stay safe. See you soon. If you enjoy this content and actually watch till this part, I mean, I'm not sure why you would do that. Make sure to like and subscribe and join the community together. So thanks for watching. Stay safe. God bless. And goodbye, my friends. Thanks for watching.